These small steps where you just kind of reduce the friction and make people able to do what they want to do better are amazingly powerful and industrial designers are amazing at it. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Nodes of Design. To help support our mission spread knowledge, we have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Afshin Mehin, who is a founder of Card79, a creative studio based in San Francisco and Vancouver, where they help companies give a form to the future. He has worked with clients ranging from startups such as Neuralink and Known Home to large organizations such as Amazon, Lululemon and Ford. Before setting Card79, Afshin worked for design studios such as IDEO, Whipsaw in Bay Area, and he had also worked with Research Labs MIT's Media Lab Europe in Dublin. In this episode, Afshin had shared great insights on industrial design. We had discussed on how different is industrial design from product design and what is the framework to follow to explore ideas for manufacturing a product and reframing a problem as opportunities. We then discussed on different ways to evaluate product safety, appearance and function to determine if a design is practical and how to convey a narrative behind a design to larger stakeholders and audiences. In the end, we had concluded the show by Afshin defining as the innovation in the space of industrial design with few examples. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and on every Friday we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone. Hi, Afshin. Welcome to Nodes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to, to chat with you today. So Afshin, how was your day? My day is pretty good. It's uh, it's Friday, so things are a little bit hectic. We're just trying to wrap things up for the week. And um, I am almost there. We'll see if we can actually get it all done in time. But uh, so far, so good. How are you doing? All good here as well, Afshin. Thank you so much. So if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there. Yeah, for sure. So I'm uh, the uh, lead designer and owner of Card79. We're a design studio based in San Francisco, and we have team members around um, the world in North America and Asia. Um, we'd like to be kind of a design studio that focuses on designing the future. And we like to think of ourselves as the fortune tellers of design. Um, and so whenever you have the opportunity to help companies uh, see the future of whatever new technology or design they're looking at, um, it gets us very excited. Um, our skill sets kind of fan mostly between uh, industrial design and uh, user experience design. Um, and sometimes you move into the realm of design research. Sometimes you move into the realm of branding. But those are the two core skill sets we bring to the table. And um, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's kind of where we're at. And uh, um, hopefully that gives you a good idea on my background and, and where we're, what the studio is uh, is focused on. That's wonderful, Afshin. So what was your journey into design and how did you start? And what are your tips to the beginners on how to start? Oh, for sure. That's a great question. So um, my journey to design started out, uh, I guess, just as a young uh, boy who was fascinated by cars. And so I was just sketching floating cars and flying cars back in the early to mid 80s and uh, just passionate about that. I didn't know that was a career, um, but I had imagined having my own car company and all this stuff. Um, and then when I was, and that was when I was in grade six or seven, I guess. Um, in high school, I discovered industrial design through a um, class called Art Careers. And then I was uh, kind of enamored with what, what it would look like to design the future still. So I went through, I, I did a bit of an a obscure path towards 
design still. My parents, as, as first-generation immigrants to Canada, didn't know much about design. And so they encouraged me to go down the path of engineering. So I actually did my first degree in mechanical engineering. Um, and during that time, learned about kind of, I guess this is around the year 2000 and was exposed to um, some of the great work coming out of the MIT Media Lab around how engineering and design and art were kind of blurring together. And one of my, uh, I was like the work from John Maida back at the Aesthetics and Computation Group and also Hiroshi Ishii doing his work at the Tangible Media Group um, was always really inspiring for me. And so I started to look at like, what does it look like to do both industrial design and kind of technology design, I guess. And that's where my kind of interest in UX and UI came in, I guess, uh, or interaction design, as we called it back then. I did a master's degree at the Royal College of Art in London in industrial design. Um, and in between there, I was doing an internship at the Media Lab Europe, uh, MIT's Media Lab Armin. Dublin before they uh, before they shut that down um, and was working kind of in haptics group there um, under Sheila Moran. Uh, she was a, a lead of that group and super talented, um, focused on um, novel haptic interfaces. And so that was the grounding um, back then. And it kind of uh, turned into a little bit less academic where I moved to the Bay Area and worked for design studios like Whipsaw and like IDEO. And just tried to kind of find my path towards maybe uh, doing novel, new technology experiences, but with a, a, a more of a commercial focus so that they'd have a larger impact. Since then, I've kind of pulled back. But I guess advice for people who are going into design or looking to design, I think it's to just kind of follow uh, a path of things that you're excited about. It's going to be a lot of, uh, of work. And so it usually is driven by just curiosity and passion. So, um, and also craft. So appreciating that doing things well is really important is probably what, uh, differentiates, uh, a lot of good design from, uh, okay design. Hopefully that's useful. I'm not sure. <laughs> that's a little bit. Yeah, of a... It's, it's been a while, like it's a wonderful journey. I would say so. Thank you so much for sharing with us and yeah. it's really inspiring. So let's begin our episode today with industrial design. So what is industrial design and how different is it from product design? That's funny. I, I, I thought about that question. I, I think I'm actually less concerned with that question. Than maybe other people might be. I feel like um, industrial design and product design, it's all a product of cultural. It's a cultural product. It's not like chemistry where we actually have this thing we're solving around atoms and chemicals. We, in, we invented these terms. And so as someone who's focused on um, uh, fortune telling and seeing the future, I'm actually more curious about what, what will be the future titles we'll create. What were the future disciplines that are going to come out of this? Um, so I almost don't always look back, but I, I did study in the US. I did study in the UK and, and work in the US. And I, I feel like that question, I, I if I were to ask myself where I've kind of heard that the most, it was when I was in the UK, a lot of the industrial designers would just refer themselves as product designers. So it felt like it was more blurry over there. And then when I was over in the US, it felt like product design was more of this kind of hybrid between mechanical engineering and, and industrial design versus industrial design was more purely um, aesthetic driven or, or stronger sketching skills, stronger form development, whereas product design might be more problem solving skills. Um, but that's within those two cultural contexts. I felt they were kind of different in that way. Thank you so much, Afsin. So what's the framework that you follow to explore ideas for manufacturing a product and reframing problems as opportunities? Yeah. So I think in this situation, we, uh, as much as I love our, our idea of fortune telling, we are fairly practical people when it, when the time is right. And this is um, one of those situations where we are very practical in terms of how we phase out our work. Um, there's a lot of, uh, 
work that's been done before us and developing amazing products that we've learned from. Um, and often that process starts with being able to have an exploratory phase where you're looking at what the product could be. Depending on where you our clients are at, if they have come to us with a very clear product requirements or product kind of vision, then our exercises are more about nuancing the way that that product could be experienced by users while being respectful of the potential functionalities behind it. If they are coming to us earlier and in their kind of evolution of what this product could be, um, or they're trying to develop a new product category, then we have the ability to kind of do more design research to understand what the product challenges and opportunities are. Um, but once we've kind of gone through that phase of concrete, being more concrete with what the actual uh, aesthetics and also the use cases that we're trying to support, um, we always kind of shift gears a little bit, move into the world of, of feasibility. Our studio, we specifically do not have engineers in-house. We always partner with different engineering firms based on what their skill sets are and what the project requires. But this is where we work closely with uh, either them or for that matter, if our clients have a strong engineering team in-house, uh, we call it a phase two where we're basically a lot more focused on making our industrial design more grounded in some of the real feasibility challenges. Phase one, we're, we're definitely informed, but we might not necessarily start to uh, consider what how our surfaces or how some of the sensors or how some of the volumes in the products we're designing or on the software side, exactly some of the nuances of the interactions would be uh, built out. So phase two is where we start to flesh out the design. And then phase three is where we start to move into, I guess, in the industrial design world, it's a works like looks like model where we bring form and function together and really start to build something that looks like and works like the final design. Um, we might not necessarily have adapted, adapted all of the design for manufacturing design for assembly considerations yet, but at least that vision is becoming more kind of um, formalized. And then phase four, we move into really digging into the design for, I, I should step back. We, a lot of the early uh, design for manufacturing does happen during that. Uh, it works like looks like prototype, but we will not go super into depth. And then as we move into phase four, we're, we're definitely starting to uh, refine the design for manufacturing, design for assembly. Having said that, that's usually being done with our partners um, who are a lot more into the details of the manufacturing considerations than we are. We like to think ourselves as, as very uh, appreciative of, and the, of the challenges and the difficulties of making real products. And so we don't like to come up with ideas that can't be executed on, but we also know that everyone's got their skill set. So we don't want to necessarily be um, overstepping our knowledge. Um, so that's roughly like where we see where we see the workflow happening in, in terms of getting an idea from an idea all the way to production and shipping. That's great, Afshin. So what are the different ways to evaluate product safety, appearance and functions to determine if a design is really practical? Yeah, I think that it often depends on the context of where the product has to live. If the product is going to be in a very highly practical situation, like whether it's in a surgical operating room or whether it's in some sort of um, mining situation uh, where you have people's safety and, and there's a risk around their health, uh, then you really want to prioritize uh, the uh, the functionality and safety in a very dramatic fashion. Whereas if you start to look at what uh, you see with a consumer product, um, there's often a bit of a shift that happens where appearance, um, it doesn't necessarily challenge product safety. It doesn't challenge a lot of the function and it's still practical. And so I think being able to think, being aware of that context and being able to leverage that context is the first step you take. I think the other question is if we were designing something um, that's more based on my own personal values. Um, I think that I I think there's the side of designing products where you want to be able to understand the context and then be able to be practical in that sense. 
And sometimes I think you have to invest your own ideas of what that balance, safety, appearance, function is in terms of just creating a soul for the product. So for me, I think of products as like meaningful tools for being able to live with. And so when I think of a tool, I think of something that is actually pretty robust, long lasting, and something that will live with you over time. And I think that is something that I would assume would be uh, imbued with a sense of durability a sense of like value and something that you would want to keep for a while. So if I were to kind of adjust the idea of the word practical and think of it more as an idea of something useful or something that I'd want, then it'd be like kind of making something that's long lasting, uh, has uh, some, some durability to it and something that kind of could live with people over time and feel like a tool for living. Thank you, Afshin. So how do you convey a narrative behind a design to largest stakeholders and the audiences? <laughs> I think that's a tricky one. Um, I think that uh, basically uh, myself, uh, I think you have, I grew up with family uh, that was, um, were first generation immigrants. So often the idea of narratives that I had to navigate, trying to understand uh, the culture and the meanings that were around me were different than the ones that were part of how I grew up with my parents. And so I think that that kind of ability to translate between them has given me a little bit of an insight into how I'd want to be able to uh, translate meaning to stakeholders and audiences as well. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more sensitive to that. And I think that having said that, I still don't think I'm an expert in that. I think part of being effective at kind of conveying uh, narratives to, to larger stakeholders and audiences is also being able to partner with really amazing people who are good at their craft. And so basically, I've also started to understand the value of marketing, the, uh, the value of um, great, great brand design, uh, advertising, like, uh, it's amazing how much power those mediums have to be able to kind of sway people, especially when you think of audiences in general, if we're thinking about stakeholders and specific um, people who are within an organization that's developing the product, that's one conversation, but like the audiences as a whole, like how does a product become so, so popular. And it's not, it doesn't happen by accident. There's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes to make these narratives really well crafted so that people get them right out of the gate. They resonate and people um, want to uh, buy that design or own that design or be part of that story. Um, so I think there's a little bit of um, appreciation of, of the breadth of skill that goes into that as well. Thank you, Afshin. So how do you define innovation in the space of industrial design? Any examples that you could share? Yeah, I think when I think of innovation within industrial design, I think of it in a couple of different ways. I think there is the idea of being able to innovate in the way that industrial design is really great at, which is being able to take a product and find small ways to just make it better than it was before. And in doing so, improve people's lives. So these small steps where you just kind of reduce the friction and make people able to do what they want to do better are amazingly powerful and industrial designers are amazing at it. Um, I think that the other lens that I think about, is especially within our kind of passion for fortune telling, is when these new technology leaps are happening and industrial designers are there along the way. So whether it's like designing new mobility solutions with um, either ride sharing or bike sharing solutions where we're trying to imagine what does an autonomous bicycle look like? How does it work? Or within the robotic space, we're trying to understand how do robots exist around people? Um, or when we're thinking about, we just did a project around thought-based interfaces where we're imagining what is the future user experience look like when people can just think to control things? Um, or when we're thinking about sustainability and trying to imagine if we design this new material where we're replacing um, a non-sustainable material, 
how would you be able to use that within a, a design for a new type of garment? Those are very big picture examples. And I think that industrial design and design in general has to be part of those conversations because we have to be able to understand how to translate those new technologies into great experiences. Um, so I think that there's like that, there's the side I think I started out with, which is these small increments that are very useful in how industrial design is able to innovate. And then there's industrial designers being part of this early phase development of these new technologies so that they can really um, help it become a more humanized experience. Thank you, Afshin, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. So could you please share with us how does your typical day look like? Any interesting stories? I would say the typical day right now is a little bit funny because I'm uh, back up in Vancouver right now visiting my um, my my family. And uh, it's the first time doing it post-pandemic. And so I've got my two-year-old with me. And so he's running around. So I'm doing a little bit of balancing between taking care of my two-year-old and also managing the studio. So this is a little bit of a, a, a rare situation. But if I wasn't under this, this kind of balancing act right now, I'd probably wake up in the morning, go for a run. Um, I usually like just getting a bit of exercise. It gives me, gives me a chance to get some clarity um, and some vision for the team. We have a, some time with the family in the morning. Then I kind of prep for our, our morning stand-up. We get together at 9 a.m., um, across different time zones. Um, and, uh, we are pretty good with, I think one thing that we've gotten really good at is our ability to work with our remote tools. So we've got a nice suite of ways that we keep all the team members who are far away from each other to feel like they're in the same room. Um, and then we're just kind of bouncing back between projects really. Um, and whether it's uh, UX UI projects or whether it's industrial design projects, or whether it's just pure concept work, we also like to take on some concept work whenever we have a chance. Um, it gives us a chance to um, get that variation, which I I'd like about working in a, a consulting environment. Um, and the day kind of just disappears from there. We'll end up around six o'clock. And at that point, my day turns into a little bit of a shift um, where I, I kind of step away for a bit for family time. And I am a bit of a, a night owl slash... Um, workaholic. So I will come back on probably around 9 a 9 PM and work for a little bit longer and then, uh, and then call it a night. So, uh, yeah, I enjoy the work. So I kind of like to put in the work. Um, so that's, that's my typical day. Thank you, Afshin. So we'll conclude the show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also people who inspire you the most in this space. Yeah, I would wish I, I, I feel like I've, I've talked to a couple people today and yesterday who said they've spent the pandemic reading more and I feel like I've spent the pandemic reading less. I don't know why, but um, I, I probably don't have great books to read right now. Um, I'll list off the ones that kind of were close to my heart. Uh, one was uh, uh, Designed by Numbers by John Maida. It's the first kind of design book that I started to see is like reconciling kind of engineering minds with, with design minds. And then I think uh, in terms of another book that I always kept close to my heart is um, the, uh, the Illuminated Rumi, which is one of Rumi's, uh, he's, a, he's a Sufi poet. Um, he's got some just nice poetry that's always uh, nice for getting you through uh, those late nights of work. <laughs> and um, outside of those, those are, I'll stray a little bit from the design world. And um, uh, there's a couple of, uh, there's another writer I like very much, Sadie Smith. Um, and she's done a great job of kind of uh, talking about what it's like to live in contemporary life with different uh, cultures, different times. And as a design studio, we always like to look at the past and the future together. And she does a great job. One of her books called White Teeth, I really enjoyed. Um, and then just people inspire me as well. Um, one more example, uh, the fashion designer, Ray Kawakubo, who has the um, fashion brand Comme des Garçons. Um, she's been doing this for 40 years now. 
And she's always has new ideas and always a little bit out there, a little bit different. Um, and it's never, it's never uh, the same and it's never predictable. Um, so she's always kind of an inspiration for how uh, creative her work is. Those were a few examples of people and, and books that I thought might be hopefully relevant for the audience. And if uh, might be a little bit more outside of the, the typical design reading, but um, hopefully it's still useful in some way for the audience. Thank you so much, Afshin, for sharing all these wonderful insights and great recommendations with us. We are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. 